0: You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCR LP, Santa Cruz.
1: Hi, this is Matt Fitzsimmons, and you are listening to Drinks with Tony.
0: Get on the with Tony show, yeah. you're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Matthew Fitzsimmons. His new book is called Constance. Matthew, how are you?
1: I am great, Tony. How are you tonight?
0: I'm okay. It's actually afternoon. Are you East Coast?
1: I'm East Coast. So it's well, so it's 530. It's not exactly evening, but uh, I'm getting right. ahead of myself. It feels later than it is.
0: Well, you said you've been writing all day today, too. It's that you have a, what do you, you know, when you get to that point of um, where you do just so much looking at pages and redlining and all of a sudden it's just like, it's it, you can't even get that drunk if you try to like get that. Drunk right. Beer,
1: oh, yeah. Your head just feels about twice as heavy as it was. I mean, I've got a heavy head to start with, but it, it's it's uh, just feels like 10 pounds of lead in there at a certain point in the afternoon. But uh, yeah, uh, it was a good it was a good writing day. And the book just came out so there's a lot, a bunch of stuff to do in support of that. So I sort of wrote until about one o'clock and then shifted gears um yeah so I'm I'm uh, this is this is the close out of my work day so this was a nice way to to end things.
0: That, isn't it kind of cool to be that busy and have a book coming out too at the same time?
1: It is cool but it is you know it's that um I'm not quite busy enough to to uh to to deserve or afford an assistant but I'm just <laughs> at that level where I'm like you know, an assistant would be really great. How can I make that happen? How can I justify that? Um, and the answer is I cannot, but oh, there are, there there have been moments in the last couple of weeks where I was like, you know, what would really be good is someone to keep just teach me how to use a calendar because I am I think I've got it. And then I find out that I've missed three things in, in, in a span of four hours. I'm like, all right, I need help.
0: I oh my I I know the idea of an assistant and I know people that like use like, oh, for exposure, you could come work for me for free. and I can never do that in my life. Yeah, no, you know?
1: no, it's, no. Particularly in writing. Like there, I got not like there's nothing. There, there's no like nothing I'm T te- I'd be able. I don't even need, I need an assistant year round. I need an assistant for three weeks around book launch time. So maybe I just need to find 12 other authors and we can split an assistant Month to month to month. That, that seems to be the, uh, the best idea I've had so far.
0: That's a really good idea. I might, I might get in on that.
1: All right. All right. You get in on the ground floor. It's like a timeshare arrangement. You it's know. a
0: timeshare. <laughs> <laughs> Has that ever gone wrong? <laughs> do, you, do you, is your output, do you put out about a book a year? Um,
1: I have traditionally, uh, Constance slowed me down some. I'd been writing and uh, you know, I'd, I wrote a series, five books in a series. I wrote five books in five years. Um, and then when I shifted gears and wrote Constance, which is a completely different uh, world and different, it took me a little bit longer to uh, wrap up. So that was more, that was probably closer to 18 months than, than 12 months, but yeah, more or less, that's the cadence that I that, you know, you try and stay on. It's one of those things, if you don't turn in a book, uh, you don't get paid that year. Yeah. Um, so there, there, there's an incentive, uh, there's an incentive, there's a mortgage and uh, a whole bunch of really good reasons. Like, okay, I need to work today. It's not a, that's not a, a particularly sexy or like artistic answer, but at the end of the day, you know, you, you are, you are writing for a living and, you know, get it done or get out.
0: And, and when you, um, look back, do you go, maybe I should have been an accountant or, or would you still be a writer after knowing all of this?
1: Oh, I would definitely still be a writer. I, uh, um, you know, my, yeah, no, I, I, I never had any interest in a practical uh, um, respectable day job uh, that just, that just never seemed to be in my DNA. Uh, and I just um, got very lucky, got very fortunate and, and, uh, to have, have the ability to do this is, you know, it's one of those. Now that I've got it, I have no interest in going to accounting school or accounting, <laughs> school whatever it is you go to to become a CPA. I'm, I'm good.
0: When, when, uh, what, when you, ha- what was the first time as a writer you got paid and went, wait a second, I, I think, I think I got something here. I mean, you already knew you were a writer before that. You that we, you're either a writer no. or not. No. Well, I, well, I. You know i now you're
1: getting into semantics i you know, it, it, you know i know why, why it's sort of like the, it's like uh you know you're a writer or you're you know i know people are like well you're a writer if you're just doing it for yourself you're an author if you're getting paid to do it or is that how it is getting pub- i i don't subscribe to that i feel like that's a very sort of like yeah i i i mean i've always written uh i mean the first the first time i got paid was when i sold short drop when i was 43 years old so I think I was 43. I'd actually have to go back. See, this is why you don't want me to be your accountant, because I can't even (laughs) tell you. Um, But that, I mean, yeah, no, it was really when I sold Short Drop uh, and was able to stop my day job and write full time. That was really the first time I was like, yes, I finally have. So it was a long time. I I like to say I'm an overnight success, 25 years in the making.
0: I, I think most overnight successes take a couple decades.
1: Right, right. Unless I mean, unless your name is Jodie Foster, then you really are just an overnight success. You're like you're eight years old and you're going to be great at something. I don't right. even know what what that experience is like, but but God bless.
0: I, what is that experience? Because the you know for someone like that, I mean the, the lull in the acting career comes right so you think everything's just going to be it's like oh i'm eight years old oh my parents are putting all this money into uh, a trust for me oh i'm 13 i'm acting with robert de niro whoever that guy is he smells and it's just like going up and up and then all of a sudden the phone calls might not come in for a couple years and that's got to be like more devastating than just being rejected from the bottom and then crawling to the top
1: yeah, you know, I mean, Jodie Foster obviously went to Yale, and then someone tried to kill the president for her. So she had a very interesting, like, that's right, career career, um, you know. She, uh, pause. Um, that, was, that was the guy
0: who, who who shot Reagan, right?
1: Yeah, he, he did yeah. that for Jodie. That well, yeah, he did that for Jodie for you know that. um yeah, no. So that that had to be a real that at 20 years old that would be a lot for. I look at I mean it's always interesting to look at like some of these people who are so young and are so poised on a big stage and I I think back to myself and I was just I was unpoised. I was yeah. not I was not uh, not ready for you know some of the pressure that I see some of these 18 year olds uh, take on and do and and flourish and and some flourish and some don't. You know, you're right though. Like, uh, you know, there is no one path to get to where you hope to be.
0: I mean, yeah. Uh, if I was a young star, I just I was just having problems hiding my erection. No,
1: <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, that's it. <laughs> That's an important skill to sort of knock out at about thirteen years old.
0: Yeah, if if there were cameras blasting all around me, it would have just been like. (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah, I'm also glad that I grew up in an era before social media because Mm -hmm. I am. I I, I was joking to someone the other day that was like, I I feel really bad for this generation of teenagers who are furiously documenting every ridiculous thing that they do and leaving a digital record for their future teenagers to find. And then be like, "Hey, mom, hey, dad, what, uh, what what's going on here?" Um, and you, I, I, I you know, at least you know, my, our generation of parents, you can maintain some mystery. Like yes. your parents had no life before you were, you know, about twelve or thirteen is about the age you start to realize that your parents might have a life that doesn't involve you. Yeah, and prior to that. They're just a blank slate. They might as well be James Bond and the CIA. They only tell you what they want you to know. They're yeah. manufactured legend, doc, you know th- this is who I am. I've always been a mature 38 year old man. <laughs> I, 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 I was born this way, um, but this generation is screwed because they're gonna be like, I was always, and, and their kids are be like, uh, no, this is you doing a keg stand and slipping and (laughs) knocking your two front teeth out. Um, So uh, I'm going out, mom. You have no credibility whatsoever.
0: Mommy, I found out what camel toe means because I saw a photo of you.
1: Because Yes, you you are <laughs> teaching. You, I've learned everything <laughs> about uh, life from your TikTok. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's going to be a very – I mean, the, everyone's like, oh, it's going to be really tough to get a job because of your your online record. I'm like, hell with that. Try being a parent. Try being a parent with your kids who are much more computer savvy than you are, just like right. pulling this stuff out of the ether. So, yeah. So good luck to you all.
0: I wonder. I wonder if twenty years from now the new kids will kind of be like uh, they don't even want to be on social media. That's such a well, my parents. Let's not do that. Let's go play kickball in the street. Uh,
1: I, I, I mean, I yeah. I uh, actually, the, I mean, the book *Constance* is set twenty years in the future, and that was one of the things that I that I toyed with was the idea that. I mean, I always think that social movements' history always sort of swing on a pendulum. And that, you know, that, you know, that, you know, punk rock in the 70s was a reaction against sort of glam rock and big stage shows and all of that. It was sort of like, let's go lo-fi, let, you know, screw all of your like high production values and, you know, and all of that. I mean, there's always a generational reaction against. And it is going to be interesting to see whether, you know, is social media a just now a fixture or is there kind of a, no, I want more privacy. I'm less interested in sort of showing everything I'm doing all the time. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out.
0: When, and uh, and as as uh, someone who's written about, put a world together 20 years in the future, how what, what was it like just really kind of sinking into the, the rules of the world for uh, Constance? So... The movie I took as
1: my cautionary tale was Blade Runner, which is a great really? movie. Great. <laughs> Wait, what well, version? What version are we? Voiceover version, uh, director's cut? <laughs> the the you know the ultimate final super duper. No no bull. This is the last iteration of this. I haven't seen that one yet. Have you? Oh, I know. Oh, it's it's amazing. And okay. this one, Decker is an elephant. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I, you know, Blade Runner was made in. 80, 81, 82, somewhere in that range. And it's set in 1999. And (laughs) it speculates that in 17 years between 1982 and 1999, we would have perfect synthetic humanoid robots who would be fighting space battles off the shoulder of Orion. Um, I mean, there's like that people are living on moon colonies and, and this, that, and the other thing. It doesn't look anything like that like they were so preposterously off base and even when they made the sequel they were sort of like okay we're just gonna lean into this um but even you know it's now 20 so we're now 40 years past making a blade runner it still doesn't look anything like <laughs> yeah a blade runner. right um so you know you know so i was writing in 2020 and the book is set in 2040 So I basically did the following thing. I went, so it's 2020, let's go back to the year 2000. What's different? How would you know, if I made you walk down the main street of your town in the year 2000 and the year 2020, how would you know that you had time traveled?
0: Are you asking? Yeah. Um. So I would I would know because I would see I would see flip phones. From, phones. Yeah, the phones would be different. The uh, phones would be different. The uh, wow, what else would be different? This would be pre nine eleven, so I could just go walk into an airport bar and pay overpriced uh, drinks. Absolutely. And see someone um, off all the way to their gate. But your house is.
1: We still live in basically the same houses. Yeah. Our TVs are different. There are more integrated electric. You know, uh, you know, Wi-Fi is obviously a thing. So you know, smart devices are a thing. But otherwise, our homes are essentially the same as they were twenty years yeah. ago, as they were forty years ago.
0: Yep.
1: Um, you know, uh, you know, there are design. You know, cars look different, but they still work essentially the same way. More in, you know, in console compute like computers now built into cars but you know but the the overall differences in the day-to-day life of someone in 2000 and 2020 isn't that much yeah you know yeah t-shirts and jeans are still a thing no one's wearing a space age. I mean oh leggings leggings were a big shift the ubiquity of sort of like uh, you know anyway I mean you could go through it but this basically my guiding principle is that the changes are going to be much more subtle than you think they're going to be. So I, I really tried, I picked a few things to sort of emphasize as being different. Um, and then, and then left and, and then it was like, no, most of this is going to be the same.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so that was that was sort of a world building uh, except of course for human clones like i took i had like one big like this is a thing that that you know obviously that's that's the technology that i'm going to ramp up to uh, a level that probably would not exist in 2040 that is my blade runner overreach if you want to if you want to call it that but other than that i tried to sort of stay color within the lines of what i thought would be you know so and it'll be interesting to see you know how that's received because science fiction all, all often i think is about you know really taking the big swing and i kind of intentionally bunted like i took, i just want to i just want to keep the the world you know familiar while you also have this like crazy like human cloning technology that's affecting everything so it-
0: You know, I I like that you brought that up. It's very interesting because even people in 1950 compared to people now, it's like, what in the end, what do we want? We just want to live a good life, and you know, hopefully we make it. We make some noise. Well, as writers, hopefully we make some noise. Um, And but at the same, it's just like you know, eat your fiber. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, it's just there's going to be it's the the human body's not going to change into something else. Maybe maybe that's why people when they go grandiose with a uh, blade runner 1980 to 1999 there's there's that beautiful fantasy of hope that things will change so dramatically that they won't have to worry about the problems of today when those problems are always going to be there
1: that's an interesting idea i don't Thank know you. the you know.
0: acid just kicked in so yeah <laughs> <laughs> um
1: yeah. It's, you know, it's going to be interesting. I, uh, uh, you know I, know, I like that as an idea that, you know, that, that, I mean, at the end of the day, human needs don't change that much fundamental needs, but it is also interesting to see how, you know, technology is affecting behavior. Yes. Um, you know, it, it, it you know, maybe they're not, it's not affecting our bodies, but it is affecting our minds. It's affecting our neural pathways, you know, you, you know, how, you know, they, you know, all those articles, I don't know how accurate they are, but that suggestion that an over-reliance on screens and whatnot is affecting people's ability to interact face-to-face or yeah. and reducing, redu- you know, it's interesting. Like when I was, you know, when I was in high school, I would spend hours on the phone with my girlfriend. Yes. Um, the idea of being on the phone for hours with anyone now is horrifying to me <laughs> and i have very quickly adapted the idea that i don't call people unless i text and say hey can i give you a call uh-huh. what is that what's that what am i doing there <laughs> like you used to just call you'd be like 10:30 at night hi mrs johnson is jennifer there right uh, you know and I'd you be you very call-
0: nervous because mrs johnson could be very upset that a boy is calling her
1: right now you don't even need to speak to mrs johnson ever because everyone's got their own phone in the house you yeah. just you, so you're circumventing the parents entirely the parents are now out of that like you know that that like switchboard role um but yeah like i i find make i have you know technology has affected my comfort level with just making a phone call yeah i like it, it if someone just calls me out of the blue I kind of assume, assume that someone has died, yeah. or I need to get to a bomb shelter immediately. Why are you calling me? What, was this not a textable? Well, what what information are you going to give me that I, that could not be texted? Um
0: you know, my, and, it's funny. Like, uh, there's you know, a handful of my friends know I just call, and uh, and then there's that I, I will just call some people and they'll be like, "Hello," <laughs> you're like, right? And right. I'm like, oh. And I'm like, "Hey, what's up? How you doing?" Fine. Is everything all right? Yeah, yeah. So, what's going? Just on? call of the chat, and
1: I would just—I would be like, I'm like—I I would be like, all right, block. I would be like, all right, I, I, that guy's a terrorist. There is something terribly, terribly wrong with him, and I need to, uh, I, I need to move to an undisclosed location. And yeah, I don't know what's wrong with me. Like, it, it. I know I'm being ridiculous, but it is just.
0: No, but it's true. It's so true because there's, there's, um, sometimes where it's just like, if I get a call from someone, I'm like, oh, I kind of know that person. I'm not picking up. You better leave right. me a very. Succinct voicemail is to exactly why you're calling, um, and I got to look at my bank account and see how much you need.
1: Right, right, right. exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, I. Uh, so, so, so it is interesting. It is the way, interesting the way technology does change and affect human life, and the ways that it does not. Um, uh, so, so, yeah. So the world building for that was was a nice sort of like incremental processes you sort of you know i didn't really have an interest in writing a book that was sort of set a hundred years in the future i'm just not clever enough to there's just too many variables for for me you know i'm to like god bless people who can sort of like well in the year 3022 this is what's going on i'm like i i got i i got nothing for you I need to be within within my life. That that's about as far as I feel comfortable speculating on things.
0: And 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 I feel closer to the characters too when I can when I know the world when I know that the worlds that they're that they're in. If it's too built up and if it's totally Blade Runner in a book, I'll get confused. I got to see the movie. I got to see the pictures. It has to be a pop up book. And then I'm like, right. oh, okay, now I got it. But uh, but yeah, the nearer future stuff's a lot easier because.
1: Yeah, and and it feels more interesting to me, like books like, you know, Handmaiden's Tale* and 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 Philip K. Dick stuff and William Gibson, like that sort of near future speculative fiction. That that to me has always felt very uh, not reassuring. It's most definitely not the right word, Um, uh, but but relatable. Like I, I can when I can see my own world in it. That that to me makes more. yeah, it causes more. It stimulates my mind more than uh, than uh, than uh, than Star Wars, I, which I love, but I'm not thinking very much about how Star Wars relates to my life. Right. It's just it's just fun. Um. Anyway.
0: Yeah. Exactly. What What was your day job before you uh, got the before you got the thumbs up at 43 to go go right?
1: I was a high school teacher. I, really. Uh, what yeah, did you teach? I, I taught twelfth uh, grade English, and I taught uh, a theater class. I taught a, a, an advanced level, sort of like the like the senior level um, uh, uh, directing elective. And I was for a time the high school basketball coach. It was a, it was the best job I ever had. Like I, I said, like I get to go into work. And hang out with a bunch of 18-year-olds who are all out of their minds and (laughs) hilarious and and amazing. And I get to talk about books, I get to direct a play, and then I get to go coach a basketball game, like all in a day. Like that's that's my Wednesday. And it was it was just fantastic.
2: That sounds Um,
1: fun. It was a great job. The the big drawback was that the parents, like you had to deal with the parents and and I, I I was like I just want to deal with the kids. I don't want to I don't right. want to interface with you know um, you know Sam's parents. I just want to like let, let me let me let me work with Sam here. So the bureaucracy part of it, the grading, all of that stuff, that's a lot less fun. Like yeah. you know, like there's always that like oh your day ends at three thirty. I'm like no it doesn't. You know three thirty is when the hard part of your job begins. That's when your lesson planning grading getting ready for the next day the fun part is the actual in school stuff but it's a long it can be a really long day teaching is you know my hat is off the to, the to, to teachers because it particularly in the last year in like under zoom and 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 like oh. online teaching like i'm i taught i have friends who are still teaching and i'm like i'm so glad i'm out of that racket because it is just that just sounded like no fun at all to me
0: yeah yeah the, um, and what what are what are some of the parental concerns? You know, they're they're expecting you to be the third parent to their kid. Essentially, is that is that kind of the deal? Or? Um, well,
1: you, you you know, I taught during what I would call it, you know there was you know the, it was a generation of parents that to some extent got unkindly labeled uh, helicopter parents.
0: Uh, yeah, I um, that, I had that in my brain. <laughs>
1: um, and they are, uh, they, you know, they they you know they, it was it was sort of a philosophy where like i am going to swoop in and prevent johnny i don't know why johnny is always the the generic high school kid poor johnny uh, well,
0: but we got to talk about johnny
1: Poor, yeah well let's talk about johnny so you know it was a you know let's swoop in and make sure that oh he can't get a bad grade on this or he can't like there was a I'm, we're going to prevent our kid from failing or, or falling down or yeah. making mistakes. Yeah. And I think the huge mistake in that was failing at at certain points, falling down, making mistakes is how you learn.
0: Yes, that's life.
1: That is life. And and if you and if you you know I and I know it came from a good place, that desire to protect your your, your children. But I was like, no, you got to let them you got to let them fall down now so that they know how to do it. Um, I got a buddy who works, <laughs> you know, there was a point at which, this a story is 10 years old, but there was a point at which um, a friend of mine who works for a, uh, a defense contractor here, and I, I live in D.C., works for a defense contractor, and he, uh, he was interviewing for some entry-level positions, and he's got a resume of a 23-year-old, and his phone rings, and it's the mom. Of the 23-year-old asking, you know, wh- what do I have to do to make sure Johnny gets, it's still Johnny for the purpose of the story. I like, like called an empl- a prospective employer to like, how can, you know, what what do we have to do to make sure my son gets this job? And you just make friend, sure
0: he's not getting this job. Well,
1: my friend literally said, I was like, well, he's not, don't ever do this again. I'm about to shred your son's resume. I'm not hiring it. Yeah. And she said, You can't do that. I want to speak to your manager. Wow. And he went, gives him, like, well, good luck with that and hung up on her. And yeah. and, that, and that, you know, but you know, and obviously that's an extreme example, but there that, you know, so that was there was a lot of that in my era of teaching. I don't know what the situation is now. Um, I'm yeah. hoping the pendulum is swinging back and that parents are, you know, letting their kids you know, are, 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 are giving their kids the opportunity to to become self-sufficient.
0: Yeah. I need to, you know, I, um, I had a guest Megan Dom on uh, a, a couple months ago and she has this podcast called unspeakable. And there was this woman who let her nine-year-old ride the subway alone. It was kind of a structured, go ahead and take the, you know, New York subway, yep. take the subway. And people were like flipping out mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, back in like the '50s, '60s, and '70s, that was kind of normal, and yeah. and and these kids learned, and they became really self sufficient. And why why stop them from becoming self sufficient? Where now it's like child services would come in and go, yeah. "Oh, wait, you don't have a pillow for them to fall on when they get out of the tree? You're abusive." Yeah.
1: No, I mean, and, and and again, it's a pendulum. Like things tend to, you know, they swing. A pendulum swings too far. But then you do find, you re equilibrium over time. And, and there was, uh, you know, there was obviously a, a huge shift between parental generations of like, you know, as long as you come back by dark and you don't have a, you know, you don't have a, an arrow sticking out of your, your hip. Um, I mean, that, that's a story my dad tells. We were playing, uh, you know, by, this is the 50s. So playing cowboys and Indians with his brothers and with BB guns and actual bows and arrows. <laughs> And my Uncle Dan, or maybe it was, an, I don't know, let's say it was Uncle Dan. Uncle Dan caught an arrow in the, in the leg uh, on, the, uh, on the, the back steps going into the kitchen and runs into the kitchen. And my grandmother said, and I'm quoting, you are bleeding on my kitchen floor. I just watched that. Get out. <laughs> and that was the end of the parenting uh, for for 1958, that was like, do not bleed on the kitchen floor, go deal with your flesh wound. That's right. it. So we've obviously swung and that's the, the pendulum, I think is too far in the other direction there. And we right. have swung now. to So and hopefully over time, you find, you know, the culture finds an equilibrium and a, and, a, and, and, and some sort of balance uh, on, on those two, you know, neither one is entirely a great idea something, you know, something, you know, a little more, a little more circumspect it's called for.
0: Right. Like it's, let's say if it was the early 1960s and he walked in with an arrow, the, the mom would give him a cigarette and go, look, this'll make you feel better.
1: <laughs> Let me exactly. light this
0: for you. you know, exactly. A little exactly. more motherly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Baby steps. And then, and then, you know, Dr. Spock came in and the whole game changed. Um,
0: What was was Dr. Spock? Was he don't spank or was he spank? I can't remember. Oh, I have
1: no idea. I I'm talking out. I, I, yeah I've, I've, I've the closest i've come to dr spock is the copy from raising arizona that burns right. uh that, that, yeah, that, that, that's 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 the only copy of dr spock i've actually ever seen um so right. I, we're gonna go I,
0: kidnap a kid and we're gonna raise him right let's get the doctor. right spock. See,
1: <laughs> that's that, that's that's 1980s parenting right there in a nutshell
0: yeah are you a parent yourself
1: I have a um, my my uh, yes I have a 7 year old for for all took, intents and
0: that, purposes That took you a long
2: time to <laughs>
1: Well he's not well he is um he's my partner's son Okay um and so he, he I, every time I get asked that question I don't know exactly how to answer that Yes he's my son
0: You're the father um, role in his life
1: I yes I'm 100% the father role so um yeah I found out that it's against the law for him to to walk to he, you know, I'm in DC. He is not old enough yet to be able to walk to the store by himself. Wow. Yeah, like there, there's a law about what age you can. I was like, all right, I want you to go and you know, uh, like he's taking, I uh, got him taking um, uh, music lessons around like two blocks away. And I was like, all right, you know, he's, ta- he's basically he's taking he's, ta- he's getting ukulele lessons. He's learning the fundamentals, uh, you know, of guitar because I was like, oh, right, you're going to learn an instrument. My parents made me play violin, and that was not cool. So right. we're going we're to get you a cool instrument stat. So he's going to learn how to. He's you know he's on his way to playing the guitar. So he's got a little ukulele, and he's like learning chords and whatnot on that. But his lesson is like two blocks from the house. We live in a, a fair. We live in a Capitol Hill in D.C., which is a very sort of residential, walkable neighborhood. And he's not yet old enough to walk two blocks to his music lesson by himself. What's the by age by the law? Of- it's eight or nine. I, I, yeah. I know seven is not it, but he's close, but he's not quite there oh, yet.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, when I was seven, I was, I, I grew up in London and um, you know, I was, I was just like, I was taking the bus and the underground by myself. I was riding my bike all over town. Like, yeah. I, you know, it, it's just, just be home by dark by be home by dinner. And and you had it was amazing. It was amazing.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and with no cell phones and no GPS trackers and no nothing, I was just out, yeah. roaming, the, roaming the streets of London um, uh, until it was time for dinner. So, uh-huh. uh, yeah.
0: Did you did you spend your all your like all your uh, like teenagers and stuff in London as well?
1: No. Um, so I'm from uh, I'm from Chicago. Well, close to Chicago, a little town outside of Chicago called Wheaton, Illinois. Um, and my dad, (laughs) my dad was in banking. He was working for a Northern trust bank in Chicago. Uh, you know, he had graduated from college with a divinity major. Okay. And he graduated and say, I want to know what to do with my life. And someone said, weren't you the treasure of your fraternity? And he went, yeah. He's like, well, then go into banking because that's how it worked in the 1960s, like, you know, now you'd need to get the job he had. Coming out of college, now you'd need a ma- an MBA and yeah. probably a doctorate in, in astrophysics just to get in the door. But he got it in because he was a treasure of his fraternity in college. And a couple of years after that, when I was about three, his manager was like, "Hey Fitzsimmons, uh, we need someone in London. Pack up, you're going." So you know, we we moved to London, um, and we're there for about eight years. Um, before getting transferred to to Washington. So we came, so I came back just before high school.
0: You must've been the cool kid coming from London, going to high school. No, it
1: was the opposite. No, I was 12 years old. I was six, one and a half. <laughs> oh my God. I, I was about 118 pounds. Um, I had not great skin. I had braces. And I'd been in an all-boys school in London, so I'd never seen a girl before. So it was a horror show. Wow. Um, you know, the transition, it was a bumpy landing, my friend. It, it, uh, I, there was nothing cool. Nothing cool was happening here for <laughs> some time, maybe ever. Uh, yeah.
0: That's hard to be six, one and 12 because people look at you like an adult when you're, but, you're, but you have a 12-year-old brain.
1: I had a lot of that, you know, uh, where <laughs> where they'd be like, "Act your age." And I'm like, well, <laughs> I I am in fact, and I also I'd skip the grade, so I was younger than everyone else, and uh, was taller than everyone. So I I was one who got in trouble. I was like, you know, we expected more of you. I'm uh-huh. like, I don't know why I'm 12, right? Um, uh, but yeah, so it, that that was so. If you if you're out there with a tall kid. He's off because um, yeah. It's, uh, it, 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 yeah, that that was uh, frustrating.
0: Or lean into it and get him a suitcase and a uh, get him a suit and a briefcase, <laughs> a mustache, and yeah, the yeah, whole yeah. Thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and get him into banking. Teach him the basics of arithmetic. Right. And get him into banking because <laughs> apparently that's all it takes. <laughs> just, yeah, that's that's just mind blowing. It's it's so yeah. You know, like I not you know I didn't grow. I don't think until I was 15 and then all of a sudden I sprouted up right. and I look at old photos of myself and I'm hunched over a lot and I, and I was hunched over a lot so I can um, be the same size as my friends. And also so I was realizing so I can hear them.
1: Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Particularly at parties. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I had, I did not hunch because my mom, my mom's very tall and my dad are both tall. I'm six, six. And, and, and um, uh, there was a lot of like don't and my dad at some point took me aside. I was like, stand up straight. You will you will draw more attention to yourself by slouching than you will by standing up straight. I was like, and it was good advice. So I always had good posture. I but what I would do at parties, because you're right, you can't you know, you can't hear anyone. You're trying to talk to a girl who's, you know, who's a foot shorter than me, and I'm like, So what I would do was I would stand with my legs like that. I would I would basically do the splits so Uh I could be more but then my legs were like 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 straight out. So I was down. I don't know that that was better. That was the best solution that I could come up with at the time.
0: You could have done a, a Jean-Claude Van Damme, right? Didn't he do like do splits? on yeah, no, uh, that, that was that doesn't... was no, that was none of
1: that going on. No, <laughs> I uh, I did not I did not uh, I was not doing splits on like the kitchen counter, so uh, the bad guys couldn't tase my butt. Uh, There's none <laughs> of that, none of that.
0: Um, and then what, what got you into teaching? What, what what drove you that? What drove you in that direction?
1: So. So I actually wrote a novel back in my twenties. I uh, I'd, 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 I'd graduated college and I wanted to be in the theater and I'd gone to New York and I spent a couple of years in New York. I directed a couple of like off, 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 off Broadway plays. I'd worked here, I'd interned there um, and I was burning out on it. And for reasons that are too dumb to go into I decided I would write a novel instead. Uh, and I spent about four years working, writing a novel that, uh, turned out not to be very good. Um, and I was waiting tables and, you know, making ends meet and doing all that stuff. And I looked up and I was 28 years old and I had a bad novel, uh, and my friends were getting married and they were, you know, finishing graduate school or, you know, you know, buying a house. And, uh, you know, I had this like, oh you've, you know, sometimes when you go for it in the arts, if you miss, it feels like uh, like there's no, there's no backup plan for that. There's no, like, (laughs) like if you go, if you go to law school and you're like, oh, I don't want to be a lawyer. Lawyer is still like a, like I I went to law school is still a useful resume item. Um, I spent four years writing a bad novel is not going on your resume. So I had this huge gap. I, you know, now I'm looking around for a job. I'm looking around for what to do. And I have no, you know, I, I've got, I, I really did feel like I had blown it. Like I had taken my chance and I had ruined my life because at 28, you're incredibly melodramatic and you have Isn't no longer yeah. so I was like, oh, well, this is the end. I may as well just jump from the highest building. Um, oh. I know it was, it was a time of great sorrow in the Fitzsimmons world. Um, And I spent a couple of years, I I worked in the tech sector for a while here, um, and I didn't like it. And someone said to me, hey, you'd be a good teacher. I went, I don't like kids. And they're like, I think that would be why you'd be a good teacher. Uh Um, And a couple of different people said it to me. And I wound up applying for a job at a, a little independent school here in D.C. that would that that uh, I knew a guy who was the athletic director. He was a bartender where I worked and I, I, he worked evening shifts for extra money, but he was the, the athletic director at this like this high school. Yeah. And I'd heard stories and it sounded cool. And I saw an advertisement for an English teacher, which I thought I'd be good at. And I applied and I got it. And uh, I taught for 12 years. And it really was, yeah, it was. it was the bridge. It was the... it it gave me time to sort of gather myself. It was something that I was really good at. Like I really loved teaching. I loved that, that, you know, that time with kids and like that. And again, it's like, I could, I got to do all the things I really liked. I got to talk about books. I got to direct a play and I got to
0: coach a sport. It was pretty, it was pretty brilliant. And And when you first, when you first got the gig, were, were you, I mean, I would be scared to death of day one with a bunch of 18 year olds around. Trying to, I, I, how, what was it I like what, for you?
1: I don't want to tell you, I was just good at it. I, it was like, for me, you know, I had a theater background. I'd done a lot, you know, I'd been in an improv comedy troupe. Like I had, you know, like I, had, I never, I've never had stage fright. I have lots of other fears, but stage fright, it wasn't one of them. And to me, Going into a classroom was just was just you know is a performance. I I treated yeah. it as uh, you know like I had to, I have I have to hook and hold these fifteen year old fifteen kids attention for a class period, and I was just good at it. Like I, I don't know I mean I, I I I was good at that part of it. I was very good at like I I would have been terrible if they'd put me in a seventh grade classroom.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I know for a fact I would have been fired in about three minutes flat it's just not my age group like it's not yeah. a group of kids that i relate to or connect with uh, and i find annoying as all get out yeah.
0: but tony 18- put your boner down yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah just like the inability to ra-
1: you, you know like they're not really rational entities they're just like crazed little monkeys like they're yeah. just running around um but, like 18 year olds like like they wanted to be adults they wanted to be treated like and if you did if you didn't condescend to them if you treated right. them they were like, yes, this is what I want. I, you know, like there was a, there was there's a mutual respect there. Yeah. Um, and it was that just is, a great gig. It, it was always just intrigued a great gig. me
0: because most teachers aren't like that when I was growing up, but the ones that were, that just kind of like came at you as like, Hey, we're working on this together. Let's right. go. Those are the ones that I remember loving the most because absolutely. Yeah. They, it's like, absolutely. they weren't condescending to me. They were, they were just like, this is what we're doing. Let's, let's get on it, And It's just like, if there's one
1: thing an 18 year old, you know, like has a superpower for it is ins- like smelling insincerity and condescension a mile yeah. away. And if you're doing it, you're dead. You're yeah. just dead in the water. You'll never get them back.
0: So how long did you do improv for? Because I've, t- I've, t- I've, t- I've taken improv classes and I got t- they changed my life um, yeah. on yeah. so many levels. I don't like going to improv shows. But I do like taking the classes. Even uh, I even took a cl- uh, another beginner class two years ago. Just just shake my head up.
1: Yeah, do rehearsals are the best part of like improv because you're just like with like 15 other funny people or whatever your the size of your group is. Uh, I auditioned for a group uh, sophomore year in college. It was a brand new troupe, and uh, I got in, and I, so I did it for those three years, and then for a little bit in New York. Um, yeah, and it was just, it was a, a tremendously applicable skill set to a lot yeah. of different things, thinking on your feet, good listening skills, yes. which improv is so crucial for, um, it's not enough to be funny, it's, you know, it's like knowing when it's time to be funny, and when it's time to let the other person be funny, and like, so cooperative behavior, yeah, it, it's such a useful, on, on, on so many different fronts, uh, but yeah. So
0: I I I um I as as a writer it changed me too and I when I when I talk to my writing students I I usually tell them oh you haven't taken an improv acting class go take one and go yeah. take one at a boring place don't go to don't go to UCB don't go to something that's cool in Los Angeles go somewhere boring where it's a little older people and then and take right. the improv class and it 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 shifts your, it shifts the brain somehow it's so cool
1: that's a great piece of advice that is that really is uh because you know theater you know theater and plays and improv are, is not book writing but there are you know I mean I one of my my original you know I, someone someone asked me the other day was like have you always been a storyteller and I said well I started off telling other people's stories because when I was about Eleven. I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. Oh yeah. Uh, my dad. Did you ever do a...
0: stand-up? Did it ever?
1: I did. I did stand-up one time.
0: Uh huh. Um, mic.
1: And uh, I did an open mic night, and I got up on stage, and the the, the lights were about here because <laughs> it was a small space, <laughs> so the, the overhead like uh, Fresnels were like about here, and so I was blind. Yeah. And I I I I wasn't holding the microphone so you could hear me. Yeah. And I, I got the hook in about two and a half minutes
2: yeah.
1: and I was like, okay, like I need a lot of practice on this. And there's, I live in the DC area and it's, it's not a, a hotbed of stand-up comedy. Right. So I'm like, either I'm going to have to move to New York or Los Angeles, or I'm just like, that was one time was good. So I did not do it again, <laughs> but it was a really, I'm glad I did it that one time. But It mm-hmm. was, uh, there, there's a huge difference between being funny with your friends. Yes and being funny you know uh, you know for an audience and 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 hold, you know holding them in the palm of your hand that way um and so that was a uh was a rude i was a rude first and last lesson on that front but yeah my uh my uh, my dad gave me a whole stack of um uh you know new uh new hearts Bob Newhart albums, the old oh, comedy yeah, albums. yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, George Carlin and Bill Cosby, who obviously has has fallen out of favor, but was, you know, which is tough for his, me. His was,
0: early records were off the hook, though. I used to play, I used to do it. I was a college radio DJ and on Graveyard Shift, I would I would throw some Bill Cosby bits in there and other... other yeah, because he, cause he's not really a
1: joke teller. He's a storyteller. They're yeah. just sort of long... I mean, he's got an album called to my brother Russell, whom I slept with, um, which is a masterpiece. Like one whole side of that album is just he and his brother Russell in bed in their apartment in Philadelphia, not going to sleep and their father coming in progressively angrier and angrier and angrier. And that's the whole thing. It's just them being brothers. And it's, it's it. And I, learned, I I memorized those, you know, the New Heart and the Cosby and Carlin. And like, I would, I would just recite them. I would do the whole You know, I'd be like, we'd be sitting at dinner and I would just launch into an eight minute, you know, Bob Newhart sketch. And my mother would be like, oh my God. Okay. She was so, so long suffering. She's like, what's happening? And, Uh, and, and my, and my dad would be like, it's, I'll explain later. And I would just like, you know, and and do the whole, and, and I get, and at some point I was like, well, maybe I should come up with my own shtick and stuff doing other people's but uh it was a huge formative form you know formative piece of my storytelling.
0: I was I remember um as yeah you know, when I was a teenager and we found Monty Python you know. And oh, so yeah. we we learned all those like yep. we learned every scene of like Holy Grail and Life of Brian and we would recite them to each other my mom would just like she would she would crack up and she hated monty python and she still hates monty python but she's like the way you guys did it made it so funny and what i couldn't understand monty python but how you guys retold the stories was funnier than monty python so and then here i am you know that that's that's what that's what that's what being funny at monty python at 15 gets you yeah. <laughs> The stand ups, I I did stand up for a couple years. Um, okay, yeah. And I, are you in in Los Angeles? I am now, but I was in San Francisco when I did it. And I, and this was back when I was, um, still married and I was still kind of like, uh, you know, floating, floating, trying to figure it out. And I was kind of getting booked a lot, and it, I, okay. you know, I had a, I had a solid ten minutes, and I could stretch it to about thirteen if it was a fifteen minute set, and not and have a not great thirteen minutes, and maybe a maybe a really punchy nine minutes. But um, but I started to really hate the audiences. I had such disdain for people who had to go to a comedy club to laugh and to figure out. Mm. And, f- and figure out jokes and I, I was also in a bad marriage so I, I all these people were coming there so i can like butter them up so they can go have sex at the end of the you know at the end of the night and i was just going home sad and lonely and you know to to someone who really didn't care and, i feel like uh, you're heading into
1: like a sam kennison territory here very
0: well really, yeah. you know i it's in the i think that was the reason i did good at stand-up though is because of my disgust right and, but, but, but the disgust was so strong and I started to see people that were, that I was kind of gigging with here and there, all of a sudden they'd be on Kimmel or they'd be somewhere else, but they were also gigging, you know, they were doing three night, uh, three gigs a night, six nights a week. And that's when I was just <laughs> like, Yeah, do I, I don't like the audience that much. I'm just going to go, right. I, I that, that's it. That's I'm done. This, uh, I can't see. 18 audiences like this a week, uh, or I'll lose my. Yeah, it is
1: a it is a grind. Yeah, like I, you know, um, yeah. I I I my hats off to anyone who sort of puts their head down and really,
0: yeah,
1: can do that because it took me exactly once for me yeah. to be like, no, no, that's not. That's a, this is not for me.
0: And then um, at the same, at the flip side of that is there's people who would be like, you know, try to write and be like, and realize, oh wait, that's not for me. But they can go do stand up, or they can um, like I, even actors. Actors blow my mind. I was I got to sit in on like a casting session for a TV show a couple uh, a couple years ago, and I was just like, these poor people are just like, it's all it's so humiliating to try to get two lines on a show, and then but I realized at the end I was like, wait a second, that's what I do to write. I humiliate myself to death until I get something good on the page. And, and it just all clicked. I'm like, of course, they're actors, and my my respect just went through the roof. I'm like, I get it. We're the same, just different mediums. And I humiliate myself constantly, but it's for the page. And you have to do it in this certain level. And in the end, you know that just the storytelling of how actors tell a story and like dissect a story, it just blows my mind. These these it's the choices they make and the the research they put in and and, and it's all for just how they say two words and it means everything.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I lived when I was in New York, when I was in my early twenties, you know, I was pursuing directing. And I lived, I, you know, I lived with a playwright and two actors and they went through these cycles where, I mean, I think acting like auditioning is just, you know, in, in New York or in Los Angeles, or it, it's just got to be, it is just, it's draining. Yeah. And you would sort of see them like, you know, uh, like build up the energy, and then they would go out for like six months of auditions. They get new headshots made, and they'd go out, and they just go to everything, and and if they didn't get something. They were just like at some point they would go back to their their side hustles and their like their day gigs and then there would just be like this like almost hibernating like they were just so worn down from the constant stream of no 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 um yeah and that just took time for them to build up like the reserves and the resiliency to go and be told no yeah. again like you, there's a point at which like you just can't hear it one more time
0: yeah um
1: And so, yeah. And then the
0: worst case scenario is they get on a a sitcom that runs for six years, and it sucks, and you're and and the producers are awful, and you're like, oh wait, this is just the other side of awful, but I'm getting a paycheck from it.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's the uh, you know everyone you know everyone loves a story about Chris Pratt, who was living in a van with his buddies, and then he got you know and like they're all on their last shekel, and then. Uh, you know, got you know, he got Parks and Rec, and is now one of the biggest movie stars in the world. But and everyone loves that story. But no, the story that no one tells is the, um, you know, what about the what about the guys in the? Hold on a second, Declan, I'm working. Go away.
0: <laughs> that Seeking is parenting. That's parenting 101. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Seven-Year-Old. Um, uh, what time is it? Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, so he, um, uh, I've totally lost my story. Declan the threw hell? you off. Declan? Declan. Yeah. Um,
0: and, and, and it's great that we got your son in on the show, too. <laughs>
1: well he would come in and just run this run this thing for uh uh given half a chance he uh he he's going to be a little performer i i I have a feeling oh so but like so no one tells a story about you know everyone loves the chris pratt story but what no one wants to think about is like what about the buddies in the band who didn't get parks and rec you know you go and you like you know you go and hustle as an actor you you know you write a novel for four years in your 20s and it doesn't hit yeah you know, th- there's you know, there there's no you know figuring out what next. Like I want a career in the arts, and my my first plan isn't happening. Yeah. So what do I do now? What do you know? Do I just do I just pack it in entirely and go become an accountant and just right. have that? Uh, you know, there's a there's a show on Netflix right on uh, Apple Plus right now with um Gordon Hewitt Gordon. What the hell is that man's name? Um, I basically had a guy who was in a, a a band, and like it didn't happen, and now he's just a teacher, and he's just depressed. And I'm like, okay, that's just that—that's a little bit too close to home. Like I, <laughs> I like I, I feel that story way down in my bones. Yeah,
0: but yeah, but then you then you teach for uh, twelve years, and then you and then you're putting out a novel a year, unless it's constants, and then it's eighteen months.
1: And then it's eighteen months.
0: Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Hey, it was an absolute pleasure. This was a blast to do.
0: Pass
2: me that lovely little gun My dear, my darling one The cleaners are coming one by one You don't even really want to stop They measure the room, they know the score They're mopping up the butcher's floor Of your broken little hearts Forgive us now what we done, it started out as a bit of fun. Here, take these before we run away. The keys to the green. to all your prayers it's roundabout it's a crystal clear it's roundabout yet yeah, somewhere here the last of that done their job on you, they're hip to it, man, they're in the groove, They holds you down, you're good as new, they're lining up to expect you.
0: You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz.